Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Several years ago, I met a woman who was in her 20s and was going through a divorce. As we got to talking, she explained that she had to leave her ex-husband because he got addicted to Oxycontin. At the time, I'd never heard of Oxycontin. And just a couple stories of people becoming addicted to prescription pain pills had crossed my radar. Maybe some of the celebrities and people like that. But no one in my community, no one that I knew personally. As I mentioned, that was several years ago. And sadly, we're all aware now of America's opiate epidemic and the tragedy it has caused individuals, families, and communities. So when I came across the book Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic by Sam Canonis, I knew I wanted to invite him to the program And there were three big questions that kept tugging at me that I hoped the book would answer for me, which it did. The first question was, how did prescription medications like Oxycontin and Vicodin and fentanyl, how did they become so overly prescribed? And what is the connection between having an addiction to a prescription medication and an addiction to heroin? because we saw an enormous increase in both of these addictions over the last 15, 20 years. My second question was, what culpability did the pharmaceutical companies have in all of this? As a psychologist, I'm very much concerned that we are all too often looking for pharmaceutical solutions to emotional issues that are better treated through talk therapy and in a more in-depth approach to processing the pain. For any of you who are interested in why I take this stance, please listen to podcast episode 22 with Dr. Alan Francis. He wrote the book, Saving Normal, an insider's revolt against out-of-control psychiatric diagnosis, DSM-5, big pharma, and the medicalization of ordinary life. I also speak with Dr. Leonard Sachs in episodes 33 and 34 about this issue, It's a huge concern and one that I sensed was likely related to the epidemic we're seeing now, and I was curious as to what role Big Pharma played. My final question was, what about pain? As a psychologist, I typically deal with pain in the emotional realm, but what about the physical realm and what about the connection between the two? Because so many people perhaps started on pain meds in order to treat a physical pain, but then also experienced emotional relief from other pain. And perhaps that emotional relief was related to why they became addicted as well. As I noted, these questions were absolutely answered in the book, and we touch on them in the interview to follow. But first, a little bit more about author Sam Quinones. Sam Quinones is a journalist, storyteller, former LA Times reporter, and author of three acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction. His career as a journalist has spanned almost 30 years. He lived for 10 years as a freelance writer in Mexico, where he wrote his first two books, 
In 2004, he returned to the United States to work for the LA Times, covering immigration, drug trafficking, neighborhood stories, and gangs. In 2014, he resigned from the paper to return to freelancing, working for National Geographic, Pacific Stanford Magazine, The New York Times, Los Angeles Magazine, and other publications. Columbia Journalism School selected him as a 2008 recipient of the Maria Moores Cabot Prize for a career of excellence in covering Latin America. He is also a 1998 recipient of an Alicia Patterson Fellowship one of the most prestigious fellowships given to print journalists. My interview with Dreamland author Sam Quinones up next. Sam, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Good to be here. Thank you. Your book, Dreamland, is fascinating, disturbing a bit demoralizing. And I think for many people in our generation, we think of heroin as this thing in the 70s with these jazz musicians and this very fringe sect of society that dabbled in this. How did you come upon this story and realize what a unique and unusual process this was that made heroin a big time drug in America again? It started really because, well, first of all, I had lived in Mexico for a long time, from 19, 10 years, 1994 to 04. And I came back to my hometown of Los Angeles and got a job at the LA Times. And while I was there, the drug war kicked off in Mexico. My job became to cover this, this drug war that was going on down in Mexico. I was in LA, spoke Spanish, and so my job was to cover how drugs made it across the rest of the United States after crossing, crossing the border. And it was as part of that, I began to realize from conversations with DEA agents and so on, that there was a, a rise in heroin use. And I could not, for the life of me, understand why that would be. This was about 2009 or 10, I believe, nine, actually. Mm -hmm. And I thought, again, as you say, I thought heroin was an old drug that no one ever messed with. It was just for you know, folks who were who were kind of on the fringe or people, you know, and it turned people into kind of homeless motel dwellers and, and that kind of thing. And, it, and no one would go back to heroin. Why right. would that happen? And so, so I really entered this, backed into it, really. I wanted to write about Mexican heroin traffickers. I did not know what OxyContin was. I did yeah. not know what Vicodin or Percocet were. And so it was only through that I began to write about this, this group from this one little town uh, there was heroin traffickers out of Mexico and how they retailed their heroin by the tenth of a gram and so on. And, and, and all that seemed very interesting to me. But still, I did not understand why they would have a, a, a growing market until I began to understand right. this transformation of pain management in the United States using opioid painkillers are very much akin cousins kind of to heroin. And it was when I got to that point, I began to realize that I was focusing on the real small part of the story, which is the heroin traffickers. The much, much bigger story was this revolution in pain management that was proceeding to create an enormous new population of addicted opioid users. You connect all the dots. And it was an impressive book to read because there were a lot of dots to connect. Yes, there <laughs> and were. Because like you, when I first was reading it, I thought, how did this market 
exist in middle class, upper middle class America. Let's throw that in too. Not the place where we typically expect a lot of heavy duty drug trafficking to be happening. So it touches all these realms and elements of American society in a way that is extraordinary, tragic, absolutely. And also fascinating from the outside observer's perspective. But I say that knowing that we're all probably one degree of separation from someone whose life has been either is gone or they've lost someone to this because it's so rampant. And it became a problem because, like you said, the idea of pain, which you have a chapter where you just talk about what is pain and the idea of the right to not be in pain and right. how when that became the messaging from Big Pharma. And I also think that that became the messaging from American consumers to yep. health consumers. We all yeah. got around, got behind this idea. And I say generally, culturally, I think uh, Americans by and large got behind the idea that we should have no pain uh, we didn't want to hear, I think, uh, doctors felt this pushback when they would suggest, you know, you really don't need these kinds of pills. What you really need is what you might call wellness, more exercise, better food, no drinking, no smoking, uh, a variety of things like that that require work from us. The doctors began to feel this pushback. Uh, I would say in the late 80s into the early 90s first and then increasing from then on. And it was at that point that doctors began to see their patients as, uh, began to understand that they needed to kind of cater to what their patients wanted. It was not their job anymore, it had been, to instruct patients on how to maintain their bodies and then kind of be instructional sources on, on, on good health and wellness. It was simply that the patients wanted to be fixed. And when you didn't have a lot of time with your patients and, and the problem was pain, then the pills of narcotic painkillers, prescription opioids, became the solution. And so across the country, the reason this became a problem that, that went well, well beyond the typical uh, uh, drug users, as, as you say, the kind of conception of that, was because it was spread by doctors. And doctors uh, all across the country bought into this, uh, were forced to buy into it reluctantly or some eagerly, all kinds of stories when it comes to that. But nevertheless, what you began to see is coast to coast doctors beginning to understand that this was the way they needed to treat pain. It was taught in medical schools and, and the patients demanded it. They didn't have a lot of time with their patients. So the great way of ending the, the appointment was to say, okay, well, I'm going to give you this prescription and the patient leaves happy. Doctor's happy because the patient left. And, and all of this began to create, therefore, addiction in areas and towns, communities, classes of, of America and society that were unprepared and unaware of what, what all that was entailed in opioid drug abuse and addiction. Well, and it parallels what I see as a psychologist, because as you're saying, there's been a shift in the cultural norm of how we manage, how we address, how we conceptualize, as you said, pain. And mm-hmm. so in the psychological realm, we have people who years ago, you would go to a therapist and try to unpack some of what's going on if you're feeling depressed, what's at the root of it. So you can kind of look at, okay, this was some childhood wound that I need to now process as an adult, go to a therapist for several months and really work through this. We're seeing the same thing in the psych realm, obviously, where someone goes, I feel depressed. And now there's this messaging, there's these ads that tell me that it's a neurotransmitter malfunction. And so it has nothing to do with my childhood that maybe I should look at 
that through my adult eyes. No, no, no. Let me just pop a pill and move on. So, of course, that intrigues me. But like you were saying, it goes to the physical realm as well. And you mentioned this, and I can't remember exactly where it was, but there was this big pain management from a holistic standpoint center that had this surge back in, was it the late 70s? And then because this shift in the cultural vantage point of what we can expect if we're in any kind of pain, it completely shut down. Right. And I think I think what happened was the idea behind pain management initially was each individual is different. Therefore, we need to prescribe a wide array of, of treatments to one patient. That array of pain management treatments is arrived at through careful consultation, patient, and doctor. And this was largely for chronic pain patients. So you know, sometimes it would be yoga, as well as physical therapy, as well as some moderate amount of opioids, as well as job therapy, maybe a lot of things went into creating a problem of chronic pain. And a lot of was psychological, a lot of it had to do with life, the state of life that that person was in. And, And increasingly, as the as the pills took over the pain conversation, particularly in the 1990s, you began to see insurance companies also played a role in this. They began to cut back on what a doctor could prescribe and be reimbursed for. And so the therapies began to fade away. And and, in their places, really, doctors were expected to solve America's pain and increasingly were left with but one tool. They could not really prescribe as many options. Instead of one patient with a variety of treatments, it became a variety of individuals with one treatment, and that treatment was opioid opioid painkillers. And so that multidisciplinary way of treating pain that began in the University of Washington's pain clinic, which is where this all begins in the 70s, as you said, begins to fade away and, and everything begins, to, okay, give pills. Pills what they want. It's cheap. The companies are reimbursing for them. And so this is going to be the option. And this shift, at least from the medical community, was in part or mostly due to a small little citation that people would quote and doctors would quote and the pharmaceutical companies would quote that was in fact not even a research study, but a kind of op-ed letter of some sort in a journal. Right. It was in the, well, the reason it it was important was because it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which was almost like the Bible, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, it 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 was a letter to the editor by a doctor in Boston, Herschel Jick, who had a database of patient hospital records. At the time, it was like 300,000. He got used to crunching the numbers and seeing what these data showed him about certain questions. And one day in the 1979, he had the idea, let's ask the data how many people were given narcotics while in hospital and how many of those then got addicted. He found there was something like close to 12,000 people received narcotics while in hospital. And then how many of those got addicted? And he found that four of them got addicted. And he wrote this up in a letter to the editor, 101 words, sent it in, and they published it in January of 1980 in the back of the New England Journal of Medicine. And he forgot all about it. And there it stayed for a number of years until it was discovered by pain specialists who were pushing this idea, the big promoters first of this idea narcotics should be used very, very aggressively for all manner of pain, began with pain specialists who began to adopt the idea that these pills were no longer addictive. Virtually non-addictive was the buzzword. Mm -hmm. And they found this letter under the unfortunate headline, Addiction Rare in Patients Treated with Narcotics. 
And they began to use the data that they thought came in this letter as justification for their idea that you could now prescribe narcotic painkillers for almost anybody. Now, here's the difference, though. Herschel Jick was correct. When you give people narcotic painkillers while in hospital under very intense scrutiny from doctors, uh, only a limited amount of those drugs and no drugs to take home, then really, when you limit supply and the supply is carefully, carefully monitored, then yes, you are not going to get a widespread addiction. However, that was forgotten. Those nuances were forgotten. And the idea was, well, we can just prescribe these for anybody then. By the mid-90s into the late 90s, early 2000s, that became the idea that it didn't matter anymore. If the person was in pain, that's all that mattered. And you could prescribe bottles of the stuff. That person could then take the bottles home, get refills, on and on and on. And there would be no problem because they were in pain and that was virtually non-addictive. So this letter was not consulted by anybody except for a few people. It was before the Internet. People were just told, this is what this specialist would quote at conferences. This is what this study, it became a study. Of course, right. it's just a letter to the editor. Right. And then it became, first I think it was called a report. And then it was called a study. And then it was called a landmark report. And then finally, within <laughs> like eight or t eight years or so of be at first being used, it was called a landmark study by Time Magazine that does much to change what we know about pills and addiction, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Total nonsense. That is not a, at all how Herschel Jick expected. Became kind of this cornerstone for this revolution, this intellectual cornerstone for this revolution in pain management that took place uh, throughout the late, beginning of the late 80s and throughout the 1990s. And it changed a lot of people's minds. And pharmaceutical companies then used what they said was the essential lesson of that letter, which was that less than 1% of all people prescribed these pills get addicted. That's not at all what it said. It said less than 1% of all pain patients in hospital with, with supplies of the drug carefully monitored get addicted. But they forgot about that part or left it out. At least. Exactly. And the whole notion, as you talked about, of patients changing their conception of what they should expect. And it, yeah. I'll, I'll bring in a quick little personal story. So in the late 90s, I tore my ACL and uh -huh. went and had reconstructive surgery, orthroscopic. And so it wasn't a big deal, really. But I was sent home with two big bottles of Vicodin. Yeah. And it was right around the time, I think, that Matthew Perry, the the guy from Friends, had struggled with this. And yeah. and so I'm just, and I'm, my father was very, very skeptical of pharmaceutical corporations always. He was not that he was like more Frank Sinatra generation, but he kind of had that hippie granola herbs. <laughs> Let's do yeah. like a Chinese holistic approach. So that's the kind of impression I was always raised with. So I took maybe one Vicodin, had the best sleep of my life, Absolutely. No question. I was knocked out, which also made me a little nervous. But I was told to get ahead of the pain. Right. That was the other thing I told you. Yes, of course. And they said, this pain's going to be excruciating. You want to get ahead of it. And I thought, no, actually, I don't. I want to let my body tell me if it needs this medicine and if my body can handle the pain. Because actually, I don't expect to have no pain after having just had knee surgery. That would be bizarre to not have any pain. So how about I just let my body tell me how much it needs and how much it handles? I think I took two of those Vicodin and I had, like I said, two huge bottles and then the rest I never took. And I'm not trying to act like I'm just so strong and empowered. I just mean that I did approach it from the standpoint of if I have any pain, I must not feel any at all. And my doctor, whatever they prescribe me, I'm just going to take without questioning. 
Yeah, that, I think that was that was what was going on in the country. The every time routine surgeries, we have fifty million routine surgeries uh, every year in this country, uh, and then another five million uh, wisdom tooth extractions. And for each mm-hmm. of those, and probably others that I'm not even mentioning, for many years, everybody will go home with an enormous body. Your listeners right now probably have many examples of this. I had an appendix operation, went home with an enormous bottle of Vicodin. and everybody has this. Op- yeah. And and what happened was a lot of those pills were used the right way and the person put the you know not too many just enough to get through the worst pain maybe or and, and I took two really that's all I ever needed was two of the 60 they sent me home with and then those pills end up in the back of the medicine cabinet uh, right. this was a common thing now a lot of those pills though end up leaking into the black market that begins to be created for pills because people find them kids get into them or some people use them until the bottle's gone and that's the, the moment when they begin to get have, have addiction problems with those pills. But that, that was the crucial thing. This is a supply story. The more you unleash on the country, which is what we did with those routine surgeries, 50, let's say 55 million of these surgeries every year for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, and every time people go into those things, they get to come away with a bottle like you and I got. Right. Um, that is what creates. You got unprecedented amount of narcotics sloshing around the country from Maine to Oregon yeah. and uh, and Hawaii, and everybody's getting them. And the, that just creates this very large consumer base and a real serious problem because supply is what creates all this. Let's connect on social. I'm most active on Instagram, where I post original quotes infographics, and I tackle trending topics in my love smarter, not harder IGTVs. On Insta, you can find me at Dr. Karen, D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril and on Twitter at Dr. Karen Anderson. And so again, to set the tone and as you did in the book to connect all these dots, there were cultural conditions that were established based on a variety of factors. But here we were in this time, a time when all these routine surgeries are happening, which are pretty common day, wisdom teeth. I mean, ACL reconstruction. These are very, like you said, appendix. These happen all the time. Now we have a different mindset from the medical community and the pharmaceutical corporations about how to manage this pain post-op. And then we have a different cultural mindset of what we can expect and what I should have to go through or not go through. And then... We have these folks from this very small town in Mexico who happen to have this black tar heroin. So I, I want to help the listener because to me at first I was like, how did this small town in Mexico with this intense heroin end up in upper Arlington, Ohio in a very high end neighborhood and a cheerleader who's 18 years old, prom queen, and she's an addict and now she's dead. Right. How did that happen? These guys had developed a system for selling heroin retail like pizza delivery, essentially, except for it was not pizza, it was heroin that they were delivering. So you call this number and they would deliver it to you. Now, these guys started in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles in the 1980s. They developed this by trial and error, this system. And others are developing this system in California at the time. But these guys are, are unique. They are the only ones that I've found who, as a whole, begin to expand like franchises. I've heard of other groups who just stuck in one area doing this system. But what made them unique was that they expanded. And the reason they had to expand was because they were all from the same town. They had to compete with each other. Soon an area would be saturated. They couldn't kill each other. 
because they're all from the same town. A lot of times they, they're cousins or they know each other. They know where each other's parents live. So you can't just go killing each other. So what they began to do was search for virgin markets. And they began doing this in the 80s. And first it was uh, uh, San Diego area, Pasadena area, Long Beach or Pomona, Ontario. Then it was Reno. It was Portland. It was uh, Seattle. It was Vegas and Phoenix and so on. And through the 80s and into the 1990s, they begin this expansion. And at no place in those areas do they find heroin markets that are growing because this is pre-opioids at that point. And so what they have to do, because they can't kill each other, they have to become master marketers. It pushes them to become very good at discounts and come-ons, customer service, and making sure the customer is really happy, giving away free dope and all this kind of stuff. And then one guy who I interviewed extensively jumps the Mississippi River with his black tar heroin and lands in Columbus, Ohio. Long story of how he got there. But basically, he lands in Columbus, Ohio in 1998, which is a crucial time because that is two years after OxyContin has been released. It's really about two, three years into this full-on revolution in pain management. And it's there he alone first comes to understand that if you just follow the pain pill, he'd never heard of OxyContin, he told me. I didn't know what an OxyContin was until I was shown by, a, by an addict who said, this is like heroin, these are like heroin. So your heroin is the fifth of price of these pills. If you follow the pills, you will have a bigger market than you've ever had because the market now is growing. For the first time in 20 years, we have a heroin market, or opioid addiction market that is growing. And that's what he first encountered in Columbus. But then he, he went to other towns. He began to scout out you know, Nashville, Indianapolis, Charlotte, other towns where this was the case. He began to understand that if you just follow the pills, an enormous, bountiful new market will be yours. He then uh, goes back to this town. Other people from the town figure out what he's doing. He tries to keep it quiet because he wants this market for himself. They, you know, that can't last for long. They figure it all out and they begin to go to Columbus and then they to Nashville, Charlotte, places like that. And in the end, all these markets become saturated because all these people are looking for the pill market uh, to, to prime with their heroin. These guys are, are not the only, the guys from Jalisco, the name of this town is Jalisco in the state of Nayarit. It's a small town, head of a county seat of a small county, not far from the capital of Nayarit, um, maybe 40,000, 45,000 people in this, in this county. They are not the only heroin traffickers from Mexico. Their, their importance to this story is that they are the first ones to recognize and then systematically begin to exploit the enormous market of, for heroin that's then beginning to grow, created by this expansion, this massively indiscriminate, almost prescribing of narcotic painkillers. And that's why they're important to the story. Because in Columbus, Ohio, 1998, think of that. They knew what was, was going to happen like 20 years ago plus. They figured it out because they're doing retail. They're very close to the customer. They could see this happening because this one guy happened to land in Columbus. And from there, of course, they spread out because they're very expansionary. They're unlike other groups that, that trafficked in, that they were always looking for virgin retail markets. And, and that's what led them to Columbus and other cities around them. And it was a perfect storm. Yeah, right. I think so. There was a whole bunch of things that had to combine to make sure that this all took place. But of course, the first thing beyond anything was this expansion of the opioid prescription painkiller a market that began in the in the early 90s and, and was really revving by the time they arrived in, in Ohio. 
So I know you mentioned several of these stories, and it's heartbreaking. So many of these parents now who had the football player, he was the hero, and yeah. he had a knee injury or something, and he gets hooked. And then, as you're saying, he gets hooked on the prescribed medication, right. but to keep it going once, and it depends, you know, you had some pill mills, and you had some doctors who were very happy to push pills. They had no problem with that. But if it was a more legit operation, they might cut the kid off at some point, right? Because the surgery was six months ago. But then they had this lovely option of this pizza delivery style heroin. And pretty quickly, these kids are addicted. These kids that do not look like, again, going back to what I thought of a a heroin addict growing up as a child in the 70s, it did not look like this jock, the letterman from the nice, pretty high school no, not at all. And that's what the, that's what this story did. It, it mainstreamed heroin, basically. Yeah, as you said very rightly, heroin used to be the purview of jazz musicians and punk rockers and urban. And then it became, uh, football became the gateway to heroin addiction mm-hmm. in America because football creates nothing but chronic pain. And we dealt with chronic pain through opioid painkillers. And the number of kids who got addicted because of high school sports injuries is I'm not sure there's, they've actually done a study on it, but anecdotally, I can tell you, man, it just seemed huge, that number, all across the country. It's remarkable. The story is fascinating, the way that you connect these dots. And you're very much a reporter. You're just telling the right. story. You're showing all the connections. And you you really get into the, the Jalisco boys is what they were called. Mm-hmm. And they're an unusual drug dealer as well because they don't use it. And that was the other thing no. that you talk about. They're very much... They're here. They got a job to do. They want to fly beneath the radar, get home because they could make some money. And that was the goal. Whereas you mentioned that, again, the traditional notion of drug dealers, he's addicted too. So they're cutting the heroin. They're not giving you the best heroin. By the time it gets to the consumer, it's been cut a couple of times. I may not be using the right term, but it's been watered down, so to speak. And so this was really intense black tar heroin because these guys weren't using either. So I thought that was an interesting point as well. And I think this is fairly common among Mexican drug traffickers. They are not there to be using drugs. They are addicted to something else, and that is the money. There's another addiction going on there that's very, very potent because the money allows them to go back home the king, right? Mm -hmm. These are poor guys, guys who've always been humiliated for being poor. That's part of poverty in Mexico, frankly. I lived there 10 years, and I can tell you part of poverty in Mexico is that people who are just a little bit better off than you make you feel awful because you're poor, the humiliation. Mm-hmm. So they would not use, they would not party. They never used guns. That's the other thing. They understood that, uh, first of all, they weren't there to kill each other because they all knew each other. But also they understood if, if they're illegally in the country, if they have some heroin and are illegally in the country, they're most likely going to be deported. If they are illegally in the country with heroin and a gun, that's a 10-year prison sentence. They did not party. They did not flash their bling or anything like that. They were all about going under the radar, making that money, sending a lot of that money home regularly. Very frequently, they would send it home. When the cops bust them, they would look like impoverished, small-time nobodies, right? Because they didn't have a lot of cash. They didn't have a lot of anything, no guns. And so... They were easy to ignore, and a lot of compartments did because they were after what seemed to be bigger fish. They didn't understand that these were networks all across the country. I went back to that town during their big fiesta in the, in the summer uh, in August, and that was like almost a convention of heroin 
dealers. You know, all these guys, that's where they spend the money. They, everybody, they want everybody to see them in their brand new Levi's 501 jeans and their, their brand new used trucks and dancing with their girlfriends, hiring the band to play for them, the, the banda, as they say, in, in the plaza there. And everybody wants to show that they did it, that they have arrived, that you know, they're no longer poor and targets for humiliation. That was also part of it. But they were as addicted to the money as these other addicts were addicted to the drugs because they would go home, spend all this money looking like big guys, and then that money would run out. They were not going back to being poor. So they would go back up here to sell more dope and because they could not stand the idea that they were ever going to be poor again. So there was a lot of kind of addiction ideas throughout the book as I came to report it. And you're right. I'm a reporter. If you look at my bibliography, this, you know, there's maybe like 10 or 12 books that I actually consulted for this. Mostly it was interviews, people in prison, traffickers, addicts, parents, all that stuff. And you're right. Another thing that would happen was this hit parents and families where nobody was ready. Nobody knew what to do. And everybody wanted to keep it quiet because it's such a yeah. shameful thing, supposedly, right. to have a kid who's addicted and this kind of thing. So Everybody would start from scratch, make a lot of mistakes. A lot of people died because of those mistakes. And they didn't because those parents did not know who to talk to, did not know where to turn. And that was another problem here. Everybody kept it quiet. And because it was quiet, it spread all across the country. Mm -hmm. That's another reason why we have it uh, coast to coast. And I was born and raised in Cincinnati. And I believe Dayton, which is just north of Cincinnati, as you know, I believe that county still has the highest number of deaths or it's it's rampant yeah. in that. Is it Springfield County? I'm not sure what it is, the county. Springfield and Dayton. But, he, but here's what's also happened since then. And that is this. These guys were big fish in the small ponds where they were in the 1990s and into the 2000s so for several years. But what's happened recently, I would say, is the underworld has figured out that there's a, an enormous consumer base addicted to opiates. And, and that has meant that this problem has exploded. The underworld market for this has exploded. And so the guys that I wrote about were the pioneers in all this, figured this all out. They are now still operating, but they're no longer the big fish in the small ponds because those ponds are now oceans. And yeah. they have huge numbers of people now in Mexico and in the United States involved in those markets, selling into those markets, whole new populations of people. And so what they spotted in the late 90s, very perceptively, enormously talented businessmen, I always thought, yeah. has now been recognized by everybody. And so what you're seeing is in places like Dayton and other places, Huntington, West Virginia, for example, you're getting new sources. The larger mm -hmm. cartels in Mexico were now involved with before they were really far less so, let's say. And the sources are now, and so you're getting now fentanyl, and you're getting fentanyl uh, mm -hmm. uh, imported through the mails from China. All of that now is part of the story, which is going to be the topic, frankly, in my next book, a follow-up to Dreamland. The underworld transforms and changes weekly, you know, very, very yeah. lightning fast. And that's what's happened yeah. with this whole story, too. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the work with me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns. We'll target limiting beliefs and thought patterns. We'll learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood. We'll identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals 
and we'll together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. Well, and you spoke to the poverty in Mexico, and then the poverty in America also is a theme that made particular communities quite vulnerable as well. We spoke to this heroin epidemic showing up in the upper echelon, but also in the poverty-stricken communities, communities where the manufacturing had been outsourced, the communities that used to have this foundation. And, And Dreamland is the name of a pool. So speak a little bit to Portsmouth, Ohio, and how it became particularly vulnerable. Yes, that became part of the story midway. I started this book believing that I was writing about a very confined story, and it, it had two components. One was pharmaceutical company marketing and doctors prescribing, and the other was heroin trafficker marketing and selling of heroin. And that little box you know, that included those two elements was the story. And then along the way, I began to realize, well, yes, that's certainly part of the story, but what is also probably even more important was what we have done as Americans to community, you know, the basic bonds that hold us together. We have shredded them. And that is in uh, wealthy communities. It's in suburbs where nobody knows each other and families don't even spend much time together, you know. It's in poor communities, as you say, that that have been devastated by the industrialization and jobs going abroad and, and all that. But all across the country, you can say the common denominator, all the communities affected by this, is that there has been some deep, deep shredding or lack of community, a lot of isolation. We're seeing that now, especially with the coronavirus, Mm. of course, Mm -hmm. and just an enhancement of that idea. But midway through the book, I began to realize that this is a bigger story. This is about who we are as Americans and what we are uh, as a country. And the place where I began to write about that was in this town of Portsmouth, Ohio, a Rust Belt town on the Ohio River across from Kentucky. It had been a booming community a lot of jobs, bustling Main Street, and the center, soulful center of the town really was this enormous swimming pool where everybody saw each other, everybody grew up at this swimming pool. It was like the town babysitter, you know, it was where romance started, and the name of the pool, very romantically, I thought, was Dreamland, where everybody, room for everybody, it was this dreamland place and dreamy place, and everyone loved, and then, of course, the steel jobs leave. So do some other factory jobs. Main Street begins to empty out because a lot of the people begin to leave. And finally, Dreamland can no longer hang on. And they they close it, they dig it up, and they turn it into a strip mall. And with that, a central component of the life of that town was torn away. And that left it very much vulnerable. Half the population was gone. People turned indoors. They didn't go out there and see each other. The only place you really see each other now, instead of the pool, was Walmart. And uh, when they were to go shopping, that was about the only place you'd go shopping apart from a Kroger's. And so all of this meant that they were, it was very vulnerable, not the bonds holding that town together and into this very, very vulnerable area crept opioid painkillers beginning in about 98, 99. And from there on, the importance of Portsmouth to the story is that right there, they invent one doctor in particular invents what becomes the pill mill, a pain clinic that may have started out legitimately, uh, maybe not, but whatever the case, within a short <laughs> period of time, it becomes a place where you're just prescribing huge amounts of painkillers for cash. And so you have enormous waiting rooms full of people, lines out the door, fights over who's got next place in line, 
all that kind of stuff it begin to happen. And huge amounts of pills prescribed and enormous amounts of addiction, whole generations really caught up in this. And that business model is part of why, too, these pills begin to spread across the country. First, it's in southern Ohio, Appalachia, West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, eastern Tennessee, Virginia, parts of that. But then it moves south to Florida. Florida in the mm-hmm. mid-2000s becomes the, the great gold rush, the wild west of pill mills, particularly like Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, and so on. The reason I called the book Dreamland was because I thought within the experience of that pool was an experience that we had felt all across the country in wealthy communities too, where we had just essentially destroyed, ignored, deprived, unfunded, whatever you want to say, all these ways of coming together as people. And that left us very isolated very on our own. And that's what those families faced when their kids grew addicted. They didn't know who to turn to. They're all alone. And there was not that community bond that would have been, I think, one of the bulwarks against this problem. And now it was no longer there. And the result is widespread addiction, death. A lot of that, I think, rooted in the idea that we have destroyed community. That's why I called the book Dreamland, because we have a million different examples of Dreamland-like situations all across the country where we have just simply not done anything to foment or encourage a community feel in the, in, in the places where we live. And that's a theme I keep hearing with some of the professionals that I've been speaking to on the podcast. I had Dr. Leonard Sachs on the program. He's a parenting expert. He's a has a PhD in psychology and an MD. He's a pediatrician and seen over the last 30 years in his practice the rise in depression and anxiety with young kids that we didn't see yeah. in our generation growing up. And he believes yeah. it's very much because we have, we're always somewhat alienated from other generations by virtue of, you know, you go to school with your peers, but to the point that we have pulled away these community gatherings, people aren't going to church in the same numbers. They aren't going to community yeah. centers, dreamland's gone, that sort of thing. We're not having that generational influence. So kids only look to each other, which we know a 13 year old looking to another 13 year old for values, clarification, and for who I should be. And we're, we're pulling away from kids developmentally, those positive forces right. and the influences from those who've been there who know more because they're wiser and older and love them deeply because we're just not having that opportunity to interact in community settings with those positive interactions. Right. I think that's, that's a big part of this. And I did not understand that when I started the book. That was something that little by little crept up on me. As I was doing more and more interviews, I began hearing these references to this kind of thing. And I began to think, wow, I had not mm-hmm. thought about that being part of it. But then I began to probe more and, and I began to realize, oh, no, that's huge. In fact, I'd stumbled on this enormous story. I really thought of the story as confined to the, to, to the original idea. And then I began to realize, oh, my God, this is massive. This is a towering mm-hmm story about and and begin to realize you write about heroin what you're really doing is writing about america we're writing Mm -hmm. about isolation about uh, taking away of the essential forums for coming together yeah church is a big one and i would say too i mean all the nuclear family has become so uh, fragmented itself and the nuclear family really may not even be a very good way of, of coming together because it's so easily we've seen these wealthier neighborhoods it's so easy to just isolate like that you know and, and so all of this became part of what i what i began to understand was the story but it, it comes when you just immerse yourself on a topic and do interview after interview after interview, thinking for two years about about this topic, that's when I began to realize, wow. And that's when I began to realize, 
I have to find a way of talking about that. And that's where the swimming pool dreamland in Portsmouth, Ohio came in. Yeah, because you did. You had to weave in myriad themes that it wasn't really obvious at first how they all were playing their part. And like you said, really, it's it's just a look at the last 20, 30 years of what's going on in America, frankly. It really is. And when you talked about when things moved down to Florida, I remember seeing a, like a 60 Minutes on this stuff in Florida and what's going on with these pill mills. And so that came across my radar. And all these seemingly disconnected variables that, again, made this perfect storm. But the pill mills also should be spoken to a little bit more depth. We had some doctors who, I don't know when they lost their way or if they ever had their way, but... Well, you know, what happened was I thought a lot about that. And I think that for a lot of doctors, this was a great thing. This was, oh my God, now I get to help my patients. Most doctors are not shysters. Most doctors are not quaps. 99.9% go in for really good motives. And they began to think, oh, this is going to be great. But what begins to happen, particularly as you begin to develop a reputation around town for someone who's pretty easy with the prescription pen, is that people begin more and more, you would begin to attract people whose real interest is just trying pills out of you. Or maybe in your area, people just come to the doctor. What they really have is an economic pain. And the doc, but the, yeah. there's no way to turn, nowhere to turn for that. So the doctor has what might be deemed a solution, which is pills. And so people start going to the doctor, and little by little, that moral compass begins to erode and, and fall apart, and the doctor begins to slide down into this. I do not believe that most doctors who got in trouble did so right off the bat. I believe a more mm-hmm. likely scenario is that they. Some did, but more likely what you saw is people just gradually lost their bearings. Mm-hmm. And, and after a while, they were huge prescribers when what they thought they were doing was actually helping people. They mm-hmm. were actually, co- of course, contributing to addiction in a variety of ways. And you see this realization. I did a story for the Atlantic Monthly about a doctor in, in Clarksburg, West Virginia, Lou Hortensio, for whom that was exactly the story. There's no no bad motives on this guy's part, but he ends up these pills were marketed as a boon for doctors, and they turned into a curse for a lot of people because they were so easy to prescribe. They had so little time. They had so much need out there, and these pills just kept people coming and going. And there was an addiction, too, there. Too. I'm addicted to making my patients leave with a smile on their face. Yeah. And the way you do that is not tell them they have to exercise more and, and, and <laughs> stop drinking liter bottles of Pepsi-Cola. You do that by giving them prescriptions for pain pills. And that was, across the country, another element to this. I began to realize that it was doctors wanting to do well and just gradually having their moral compass corroded or eroded mm-hmm. by this relentless onslaught of patients who are demanding, demanding, demanding to have more pills. And wasn't it in Portsmouth that eventually the pills became used as currency at some yeah, point? Right. And, and it became a, became a kind of an Oxycontin economy. Yeah. So you could buy whatever you needed with pills. Pills, if you think about it, are fantastic currency, particularly if you have these doctors prescribing them in enormous amounts. You have like a, a money supply of these pills entering the, the economy all the time. And pills, like currency, they don't dissolve. Uh, very easily. They keep their value. They've got it marked on the pill, you know, 30 milligrams or whatever. They've got the pharmaceutical markings and all that. And so they act very, very well like like currency. And they come from a variety of denominations too, you know, five milligrams, 10, 20, 30, 80, whatever it happens to be. 
And so people would tend to not care so much about cash and they would just pay in pills. <laughs> and so people would go to the Walmart, rip off Walmart for whatever they could get. Uh, Walmart being about the only place where you could find goods for sale uh, other than Kroger, all the other downtown shops having closed. They take it to the dealer and the dealer would give them in pills half of the value. So if it was a buzzsaw, say, well, that's 80 bucks at Walmart, so I can give you $40 worth of pills, that kind of thing. And people did that for a long time because the supply of pills was so vast and unrelenting, sustained quantities constantly pumped into this community. And if you got arrested at Walmart, you know, there's another Walmart 20 miles in any direction you want to drive, so it's not going to be that big of a problem. Yeah, reading that, I was just blown away. I, I couldn't even believe that that had come to the point where... Oh, yeah. Very common. And what also happened was they developed little stores, black market stores. And so if you would rip off Walmart for baby goods or, or, or hardware goods, you would set that stuff up for sale in your apartment. And so this was, you know, not common, but did happen several times where people would set up stores of stuff that was stolen from Walmart, all with the same theme, you know, onesies and bottles for them and jumpers for babies or hardware stuff or lawn care stuff or whatever, because they had just taken to knowing how to rip off Walmart pretty easily. Unbelievable. I mean, yeah, just I thought, so too. I thought I was blown away by that as well. Yeah. Dan invented it because I kept burning my tongue on my black coffee. And then we realized the perfecter could do so much more. It's the only way to brew coffee or tea and then immediately ice it for iced coffee or iced tea without watering down the flavor. It also brings bourbon to a perfect chill, again, without diluting it or bruising the flavor notes. But my favorite application, wine. The perfecter takes your room temperature red to the recommended low 60s in just 20 seconds. And as a bonus, the Perfector aerates your vintage as well. Check out all the Perfector's applications, including bringing white wine to its most flavorful temperature at drinkperfection.com. Love and Life listeners can use promo code PODCAST at checkout for 20% off your Perfector. And again, the other piece that has now recently come across my radar is I'm seeing commercials now for... Purdue Pharma is getting sued yeah. in, or did they go bankrupt already? And people are trying they to help. for bankruptcy because of the lawsuits. This is okay. one, of the, one of the things that struck me was when I was in the middle of all this, that one reflection of how little recognized was this topic was the fact that there were only three, three lawsuits when I was doing this story, 2013, 14, so not that long ago, three lawsuits brought by three counties, Chicago, Santa Clara County in, L in California and Orange County, California. And that was it. And this company seemed unbeatable, seemed dominant, seemed impenetrable. And then you fast forward, book comes out, begin to begin to see within a year maybe or so of the book coming out, I began to see more law lawsuits and then more lawsuits. And now it's just a avalanche of lawsuits. And I've lost track, honestly. I, I really don't know for a fact how many there are, but it's between 2,500 and 3,000 uh, plaintiff lawsuits. And Purdue is at the top of almost all of them. And, and so the company, which is really a family company, it's a private company, it's not public, no stock or anything, is owned by the Sackler family. And this company has filed for bankruptcy, hoping to 
set up a system in which they pay something like on the order of $12 billion and then go into bankruptcy and, and that kind of thing. And that, that is all being hashed out by lawyers, by attorneys general and uh, how to work through all those lawsuits. That's not my job, thankfully, but um, <laughs> we're, we're going to find out how that works. But all of it, this is an idea to say this is a classic example of private profit and public cost. The mm. profits go to drug manufacturers and distributors. The costs are borne usually by counties, coroners, jails, courts, foster children yeah. uh, agencies, the, the county hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. You can go on a long, long list of all these agencies. This is an attempt by the counties to say, we need to make sure that we get our money for the stuff that we didn't cause this problem. And we want those folks who have profited most to pay for it. So Sam, as we wrap up, I'm curious, and you may, as a reporter, you're very objective. And again, I want to really recommend this story is incredible. It's Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. As we've been speaking to today, there will be something that has touched you personally in this story or someone that you know. And if it hasn't, thank God, be thankful because yeah. it's so rampant. And also, there, there will be something that intrigues you. And whether it's someone like me who's very concerned about big pharma in general, of course, that piqued my interest and my concern. Or yeah. whether it's the fabric of American society and the lack of community, which of course is touching many people. Certainly parents are feeling this as we spoke to earlier as well. Right. And again, Sam, as a reporter, you may not want to speak to this, but as we talk about these lawsuits, it occurs to me there's a tension too between personal responsibility and yeah. and advertising and marketing and whether it came from the Jalisco boys and their marketing strategies or Big Pharma's ad campaigns. I also look to us as trying to be more savvy consumers of everything oh, yeah. that's out there. And your book is a real, to me, a wake-up call for all of us to not just go blindly about yeah. adhering to every message that is in front of us, but to be much more critical, a consumer of these messages. I think that's huge in all this. And I have to say, in the middle of all this, I began to understand that our consumer decisions are a big part of this story as well. There's a lot of threads to this story, but one of them, our consumer decisions played a part in all this. And so I, I stopped drinking soda because I thought sugar is addictive. It's been definitely shown to be so. And I want to be part in that. And since then, I've just cut out sugar mostly in my life. I, I exercise more. But I think one of the key factors in all this, yes, it's absolutely true that there is a culpability on the part of pharmaceutical companies. I do not mean to, to lessen that idea because I think we're going to find that that was true. But what we can take away as individual Americans is that our lesson from this opioid epidemic is that we all have an accountability, a personal responsibility to question what we consume, consume less, understand that consuming certain things are obviously going to be bad for us. High amounts of sugar and fat in one food going to be bad. Don't do it. Exercise more. Our bodies were made to move. We need to move more. We need to walk more, swim, whatever. But all of this is to say that we all have a personal responsibility in understanding and, wa and watching what we consume and how we live our lives because to not do that leaves us prey to whatever, yeah, to whatever marketing the pharmaceutical companies come up with or the underworld comes mm -hmm. up with. And the more we rely on ourselves, the more we will take control of our lives and not be prey to those groups that would like to market to us. The next book that I'm writing 
has a lot about that. Think about all the things that are addictive, but legal. Sugar being a main one, nicotine, video games, gambling. Think about the huge casino corporations and so on. Think about social media apps. My God. All of that is priming us for addiction and for obeying certain cues and so on. And these companies understand and have manipulated these products to such a degree that they understand how to manipulate our brains. We need to fight back. And that's one of the lessons of all this, that we cannot just sit around and go, oh, well, I'll just do it because, you know. I know I'm going to look at the labels. I'm going to ask myself whether I need that app. I'm going to ask myself whether it's really a good idea to go to that casino right now. I'm going to fight back in a variety of ways about this. And I I began to feel that in the middle of this book as well. Well, I eagerly look forward to your next book because you're... Me too. I can't (laughs) wait. I'm worn out by writing it. (laughs) (laughs) No, this book was fantastic. It's a long time. Now, I've read one of your books, and I can tell it takes a long time. There's an enormous amount of research and interviewing that you do, and it's very well written. It's intriguing. I can't recommend it enough. I want to thank you so much for your time today, for coming and sharing, and I'd love to have you back on the program to talk about your next book whenever you're ready to promote that. So Sure. Will do. Karen, it's really been great talking with you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your your listeners. It's been great, And, and yeah, I'll get in touch with you whenever that book comes out. And Sam, where can listeners find you to follow you on social media and learn more about your projects and what you're up to? Uh, my website is samkinyonis.com. I'm on Facebook at Sam Kenyonis Journalist. I'm on Twitter at Sam Kenyonis 7 and Instagram, I think also at Sam Kenyonis. So Sam Kenyonis Photography and Sam Kenyonis Author or something like that. Anyway, look me up. I know it shouldn't be too hard to find. Excellent. Thanks again, Sam. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. The love and life hack for this week is take ownership. I don't want to be cynical and say we can't trust our doctors, but we do need to be savvy. And it's sad because we want to believe that we can trust the experts, but oftentimes there are other factors at work that we're not aware of. So we need to think critically. We need to get second and third and fourth opinions. And we need to take control. And if it seems too good to be true, like I'll never have to feel any pain, it probably is. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Thank you so much for joining me this week. And a special thank you as always to those of you who've subscribed to the podcast and have rated and reviewed it. I appreciate it so much. It takes five seconds. If you have a moment, please do so. It helps others find the program and join the Love and Life family. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.